Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Public Health. It's September 2022 and I'm Florence Wilkes-Costales. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Edda Björk Thordadotter, Assistant Professor at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Iceland, whose new research on the risk factors for sexual harassment and sexual violence in the workplace is published in our issue this month. Hello, Edda. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. To begin, to what extent are women in particular vulnerable to sexual harassment and violence in the workplace? Sexual harassment and sexual violence against women is a social problem worldwide. And throughout history, women have been more likely to be subjected to it. Previous studies suggest that 11 to 72 percent of women have been exposed to harassment or violence in the workplace. And findings from our study indicate that approximately one third of women have been exposed to over their lifetime and 8% in their current workplace. Women are more vulnerable to harassment and violence, both within and outside the workplace, in large part because of social and cultural norms that are ingrained in every culture. These are, for instance, harmful stereotypes of masculinity, such as aggression, dominance, and control. We know that harassment and violence is more common in relationships in which men control decision-making, have a sense of entitlement to women, and rigid ideas about how women should behave. A similar dynamic may be at play when it comes to sexual harassment and violence within the workplace, since research has shown that male-dominated work settings tend to have the highest prevalence. The work climate is one of the greatest predictors of sexual harassment. Um, It is less common in work environments that have clear consequences for such behavior. Employers and managers are communicating a tolerance of it when they do not take complaints seriously, fail to sanction perpetrators, or fail to protect those subjected to it from retaliation. Co-workers have an important role too, because they can intervene when they witness harassment, but often they remain silent. Thus, we must change the culture of workplaces where sexual harassment and violence against women is common. And so... What are the adverse health effects associated with this type of sexual harassment and violence? Exposed women are more likely to require healthcare services and sexual harassment and violence has been associated with elevated risk of mental health problems such as depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety, sleep problems and post-traumatic stress disorder. Feelings of self-doubt and shame are common. Um, Sexual harassment and violence at work has also been linked to adverse physical health outcomes, such as symptoms from the musculoskeletal, nervous, and cardiovascular system. And it's therefore not surprising that exposed women are more likely to go on sick leave. Consequently, in our study, we found that women who were on sick leave had among the highest prevalence of exposure to workplace sexual harassment and violence. Unfortunately, most women remain silent about being sexually harassed in the workplace, as was evident in the Me Too movement when so many women stepped forward with their stories, shedding light on the scope of the problem. Women fear that they will not be believed, that they will be blamed, and they fear social or professional retaliation. And these are often well-grounded fears. Most women end up leaving their job after being sexually harassed or assaulted, leading them to being unemployed, having to change jobs, or even abandoning their careers. For those women who do report sexual harassment and violence at work, what services are available to them? 
When thinking about the services available to women, it's interesting to reflect on how long it took to put in place legislation pertaining to sexual harassment and violence. It wasn't until 1979 that sexual harassment was legally acknowledged as a form of sexual discrimination in the United States. And it took another 40 years for it to become international law when the International Labor Organization's Violence and Harassment Convention came into force in 2021, which sets the legal standards for preventing and responding to harassment and violence in the workplace. The convention recommends, for example, that victims be helped to re-enter the labor market, and they recommend counseling and information services, 24-hour hotlines, medical care, and psychological supports. Unfortunately, not all countries have ratified the Violence and Harassment Convention. So sexual harassment and violence is still systematically ignored in many countries in the world, with no laws prohibiting sexual harassment at work in more than one-third of the world's states. Millions of women are thus working today without any legal protection if they are exposed to sexual harassment or violence within the workplace. Consequently, many world states do not provide adequate services such as psychological support, medical assistance, or legal consultation for exposed women. But generally, women's legal rights and the services available to them, if any, vary by country. Some countries have centers for psychological supports and human rights commissions for discrimination complaint processes. Women who belong to unions can report their experience there. However, women often lack information about what services are available to them. Even within countries with legislation regarding workplace sexual harassment and violence, there is great variability in how each workplace tackles sexual harassment and violence. We know, however, that to prevent it, it's vital for employers to have policies about sexual harassment and to monitor and enforce those rules. It's interesting that in Iceland, despite laws obligating companies to have guidelines regarding sexual harassment, a recent study found that only half of companies who have received reports of harassment had such protocol. Could you outline for us how your study was done and what the main findings were? Sure. Participants in our study were 15,000 women of working age in Iceland who took part in the Stress and Gene Analysis Cohort, which is a nationally representative population-based study assessing the impact of trauma on women's health. They answered an online survey that included questions about exposure to workplace sexual harassment and violence, both in current and previous work environments. Our main findings were that exposure to workplace sexual harassment or violence seems common in Iceland, with one-third of women reporting having been exposed during their lifetime, and 8% of women having experienced it in their current workplace. And it's striking how widespread workplace sexual harassment and violence is here, considering Iceland being a Nordic welfare state that has repeatedly ranked the highest worldwide in gender equality. We also found that sexual harassment and violence was more common in certain work sectors, highest among women who are public figures, such as politicians and actors, those working in the tourist services, in the legal system and security, and in manufacturing and repair, such as factories and construction work, and also in healthcare. And these are work sectors that have third-party presence and tend to be male-dominated work environments. 
We also identified demographic characteristics associated with increased risk of sexual harassment or violence in the, in the workplace. We found, for instance, that it was more reported by women who were young, as well as those in sexual minorities, for example, women who are lesbian or bisexual. And moreover, we found that women working long or irregular hours and shift work were at increased risk of harassment and violence. And this may be due to women working evenings and nights, often working alone due to, for instance, understaffing. And we know that women who are harassed are more likely to quit their jobs. And interestingly, we found that unemployed women were more likely to report sexual harassment and violence in the previous workplace compared to women who were active in the labor market. Is there a universally agreed method to measure workplace sexual harassment and violence? Uh, no, there isn't. As most women don't report sexual harassment or violence to their supervisors or file complaints, it's generally agreed that the self-reporting method provides more accurate information rather than relying on official reports, such as legal reports, as few cases come to the attention of authorities. And there is also no definite consensus about how to operationalize the construct. When self-reporting is used, sexual harassment can be measured either subjectively, asking women directly if they have experienced harassment, or by measuring it objectively by listing predefined harassing behaviors, such as sexist remarks or inappropriate behavior. Interestingly, the prevalence of sexual harassment is higher in studies with objective ratings of predefined behaviors, possibly because these two methods capture different aspects of sexual harassment, and there may be differences in how people define sexual harassment and violence. Objective measurements assess the number of harassing behaviors that women have been subjected to, while subjective ratings measure whether the harassing behavior results in feelings of victimization. In which case, how was sexual harassment and violence defined in your survey? It was assessed with the question, have you experienced sexual harassment or violence in your work or academic environment? With the response options indicating whether it took place in the past or present work environment or both. And as we use an objective rating, it's possible that our prevalence estimates are conservative because as I mentioned before, objective ratings where we ask about predefined harassing behaviors, they usually yield higher prevalence rates. Our subjective assessment might also explain in part why younger women were more likely to report exposure to harassment and violence over their lifetime. We had hypothesized the opposite, that lifetime exposure would be higher among older women as they have spent more years in the labor market and because sexual harassment in the workplace wasn't legally defined as sexual discrimination until 30 years ago in Iceland. There are likely generational differences in the perception of what behaviors constitute sexual harassment and violence. And asking it subjectively rather than asking women to define specific harassing behaviors might explain in part why we see this generational difference. Given your findings, what implication does your study have for tackling sexual harassment and violence in the workplace? Our findings provide guidance as to where interventions are needed, such as in work sectors with a third party presence and work sectors with a general high male to female ratio. We need more targeted preventive and interventive efforts in specific work environments. But it's problematic that we have limited 
empirical support for such efforts. Current interventions include teaching women specific strategies to reduce the risk of harassment and violence, as well as interventions that focus on gender role socialization. It's important that prevention efforts consider factors associated with increased risk of being harassed or assaulted, such as being young and belonging to sexual minorities. And we absolutely need effective interventions in workplaces where women work long, irregular hours and shift work. Women working in such environments are more likely to be alone with a potential perpetrator with no witnesses to the harassment or assault. Physical isolation is a risk factor for sexual harassment. For example, hotel workers such as maids who are alone in areas where no one is around. So we need to take this into account when we're defining safety in work environments. Given its high prevalence and the increased risk within workplaces in which women are in contact with third-party individuals, community-based interventions are needed to change public discourse, practices, and norms regarding sexual harassment and violence, both within and outside of the workplace. Monitoring the effectiveness of interventions is crucial, as they may not have the intended effect, with some contributing to a backlash against women, such as victim-blaming, retaliation, and even increased likelihood of harassment. With this in mind, what type of research is needed in the future? To date, data among minority groups is scarce, and we need further research among people of different origins, different sexual orientation, and among those who are disabled. Empirical support for preventative and intervention efforts is also lacking. We need to research what strategies are most effective and if they, for instance, differ between work sectors. We also need further studies assessing harassment and violence in diverse cultures. Still, one-third of countries lack legislation about workplace sexual harassment. As we know from Western countries, legislation is never enough to eliminate harassment and violence. What we need is to change deeply embedded societal norms. At least this subject has now finally reached the international agenda with the recent violence and harassment convention that I mentioned earlier. It's also important to have in mind that we need mixed research methods, both quantitative and qualitative studies. And this is important so that we can reach, for example, people with disabilities and non-native speaking people. In-depth interviews also provide us with important information about the manifestations of harassment and violence. And it's vital that we continue researching gender-based sexual harassment and violence because in a historical perspective, research on this topic is new with centuries behind us of cultural norms of violence and male dominance. Well-grounded research lays the foundation for policymaking and improved legal and healthcare services. And this is such an important public health topic as workplace harassment and violence has multi-level effects, negatively impacting the victim, their families, as well as monetary costs for society. Thank you, Edda, for sharing your insightful research with us. You can read Edda's article online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Edda and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With, The Lancet Public Health, wherever you usually get your podcasts.